This is the Wandering Berry Center podcast. I am your host, Brian. On the other side is Alex. What's up, everybody? Um, I wanted to ask you, you got, looked like you had your one of your vehicles apart a lot today. <laughs> yeah, it's still apart. <laughs> <laughs> the Buick. Um, yeah, it's very apart. GM decided to make the lower intake manifold gasket, so... You have the intake manifold where the air is coming in, and there's a gasket between that and the block. Uh, they made that plastic mm. on this particular engine. So it's a very well-documented failure point. Correct me if I'm To the point I'm... where it happens some people at, like, 50,000 miles. <laughs> oh, man. There's a lot of <laughs> yeah. heat going on. Yeah, I mean, mine's only got 85 on it, and... Um, I could see the signs of it failing from the outside, and once I got it apart, it was very clear that it had failed. So yeah, so extra air is getting in, and well, what happens is the coolant starts getting into places where it shouldn't okay. be, and when coolant gets into your oil and it gets into the bearings of the crankshaft, etc., it's bad for it. <laughs> so you want to take care of that. I assume you'll be flushing crankcase and. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. Sweet. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so the new gasket's made of aluminum, so, you know, installed correctly, won't have that problem. Um, but what made the project extra fun was that this car has a supercharger on it, so I had to take all the fuel rails off, you know, take the supercharger off and the whole ordeal, and everything's old, so you don't <laughs> want to break things. I broke one thing. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so right now, I got the, I did the valve covers too gaskets while i was in there so that's done and now it's at the point of putting everything back together but i gotta find that part first that'll be fun like junkyard style or you think you can buy it uh maybe it's this little (laughs) um (laughs) it's a little well the problem is i might just break it trying to get it off another car too Mm, it's literally a little rubber t-fitting where um vacuum hoses plug into I'm talking like an inch by an inch and you know just by being 20 years old when I tried to detach the uh uh the hoses coming into it it just split apart so perfect normally wouldn't be hard to find but of course one side has got one diameter and the other side has another diameter oh no that's why it's a hard to find a uh, little piece so I might have to get crafty yeah you could probably fashion one yeah Otherwise, though, all's, all's well. Cool. Yeah. What was the most fun part of the whole thing is once I got the supercharger off and flipped it over, I could spin it and I could see the, um, you know, the actual turbines of, I don't know if that's the right word, but... Um, the fan blades. You know, the, the, the two blades in the supercharger that create the, yep. the pressure. Yeah. I was able to see them turning and it's, nice. the tolerances on them coming together is just, it's, it's nice. <laughs> is that a uh, do you happen to know is that a supercharger that they purchased or did they design that for the car no it's it's specifically made for that vehicle um by uh buick or gm well gm probably designed it but i know it's a it's an eaton brand okay um, okay which is like a very well-known supercharger manufacturer so you know it was probably either designed in tandem or but regardless, it's specific to that engine. That being said, that engine is used in 
typical GM fashion in so many vehicles. So this process and you know is very well documented what I'm doing. So <laughs> makes it nice to have the the internet to help you along. Definitely, I don't do anything without the internet. <laughs> if it goes if it goes away, we're all screwed. Seriously, that's a good point. Cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. That's it. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else worth mentioning. It was a mess in there. <laughs> like, the reason I'm doing it now is because I have the garage, right? So right, right. I need to get this done before winter so I don't have to worry about it. And I'm glad I did because it was worse than I expected. I feel like it usually is. Yeah. Every time I Yeah, was... There, was, there was coolant in places there shouldn't be coolant. So that's, that's just not good. Um, okay. I'm up first. Yep. Um, and I actually, I had a topic and then I decided to change it just because of what's been going on recently in the news. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about hurricanes. Right on. Because obviously, or not obviously, but you know, most people know what a hurricane is, but I think once you dive into things, um, there's a lot to be learned. And then, obviously, it's going on in the news right now. So, um, I think it's worth talking about. Definitely. Uh, Yeah, so we'll just kind of look at it in general. And then maybe we can, um, you know, look about how they're classified and named. And then we can look at um, maybe some some trends and facts and figures and all that fun stuff. Um, Yeah, numbers. But in layman's terms, big-ass storm, right? Heavy Giant. rain, high winds. Um, Is that what makes a hurricane? Shit what? gets mace- messed up. Did you happen to grab the actual, like... Oh, yeah, scientifically. Um, so they're basically... They start out as um, where it's called a tropical disturbance. Depression? Which it, uh, Disturbance is actually first, technically. Oh, okay, okay. And then it becomes a tropical depression. I'm just pretending, like, I heard that word before. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's right. And that's probably where most people would start it, honestly, because I think a disturbance is just like, it sounds pretty nonchalant, doesn't yep. it? Or um, ominous, you know, both. So it, it goes from a tropical depression um, and gains strength and basically moves to a tropical storm. At that point, it gets a name and then... Um, if it progresses further beyond a certain point, which we can we can talk about that, uh, it'll get classified as a hurricane. So what I didn't know is that hurricane really isn't even the general term. Um, hurricanes are just what we call them in the Atlantic or Eastern Pacific. So this type of tropical cyclone, uh, if it's taking place, you know, in the Atlantic or the Eastern Pacific then it's a hurricane. You could copy and paste the same exact storm and put it elsewhere in the world, you know, over by like East coast of Africa or something. And that's, it gets called a cyclone Mm -hmm. over there. It gets called a typhoon. If you move over to like Indonesia and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, so hurricane, I I didn't know that. I thought that was just like a overall term, but it's technically not. And I don't know why there's different names. I guess it's just how it, how it worked out. Um, yeah, so this is pretty fascinating how they form. So I guess there's still like 
some unknown, you know, science here and, and how exactly they form and why, but we have a pretty good understanding. So I'll try to, uh, I'm no meteorologist, so. That's, it's wild best. that these things have slammed into us a couple times and we're still like, oh. Yeah, right. And Not I mean. a couple times, that's wildly underestimating it. <laughs> Countless times. Um, all right. So what you really need for a hurricane to form, if it kind of like you need, you know, fuel, air and spark right. for a fire, you need, you need warm water. Uh, you need moisture in the air and you need wind. Um, so this is why they form in the tropics specifically, because the surface temperature of the water really needs to be like 80 degrees or okay. more. So that's really happening there by the equator. Um, so you're not going to, you know, see too many hurricanes slamming into Alaska, for instance. Um, so you get this warm water, and then um, uh, what happens is basically the moist air over the warm water starts to rise. Um, it leaves a low-pressure area behind, and uh, then air from surrounding what's now a higher pressure area comes in to fill in, um, you know, that now low pressure zone. Everything flows from high to low in this world. So that's happening here. <laughs> and, um, as this is kind of happening, you know, for uh, the storm to form, it's the wind is going to kind of like swirl in generally due to the Coriolis effect actually is going to cause that and just, you know, imbalances. No so the wind starts to swirl yeah um and when we're talking about hurricanes specifically so forming you know either in the atlantic or eastern pacific um that area uh it's those winds are basically provided from africa so it's those westerly trade winds actually that are flying across the atlantic and um and you know filling in this low pressure zone that's created um can they so if we could just stop that from spin happening in, they spin in different directions depending on conditions totally yeah. okay no not well condition being whether it's northern or okay, southern hemisphere i didn't know if it was yeah it, it, it's kind of cool i didn't yeah. know that i so I, if you watch I, some satellite images if it's above the equator it'll spin um counterclockwise okay and then count or no sorry clockwise motherfucker i wrote <laughs> counterclockwise twice to bend for both hemispheres <laughs> uh, i think i'm trying to remember the video i watched i'm pretty sure it's counterclockwise for northern hemisphere and obviously clockwise for um southern i'm pretty sure that's right either way count uh it, that's what the, northern the hemisphere is counterclockwise okay that's what i thought <laughs> yeah. uh <laughs> yeah i literally wrote an incomplete fact um, okay, so you have this moist air rising, winds and now, you know, lower pressure, colder air filling in the void. Right. Um, as that moist, hot air rises, the clouds start to form. Giant cumulonimbus clouds, actually. Um, yeah. It's always the best, best so... cloud name right there, cumulonimbus. <laughs> it's just fun yeah. to say. So basically, as the cycle continues, if the conditions are right, the clouds are going to keep to grow, keep to grow, keep growing. Winds keep flowing in, getting faster and faster. Everything starts spinning faster and faster. 
Um, and the system just gains more speed and power, basically. Terrifying. Um, yeah, so the conditions have to be right, but it definitely happens pretty often, obviously. Um, so once it gains enough speed and power, the eye is formed at the center due to just the swirling effect. You, you end up with this, um, you know, it's like usually like 30 miles wide or something like, I mean, it can depend obviously on the storm, but, um, we're talking miles, this, this eye in the center. Um, and what's kind of cool is it acts like a drain. So as this thing's spinning, you have cold, low pressure air flowing down the walls of the eye and just further feeding things. You know, that's, that's a good way to say it because air and air and gases and whatnot definitely, you know, they have that liquid quality, which is hard to, Oh, it's a fluid. Yeah. It's for sure. And it's hard to remember that when thinking mm-hmm. about this sort of thing. Yeah. It, it behaves the same way. Um, it's actually cool. I, uh, I can't really show it now, but if you take a, I saw an image where they took a cross section, you know, it was a drawing, but of a, uh, of a hurricane and kind of showed you where the winds are, are flowing and everything. So it's, it's coming um, up from, up from the middle and then spilling out kind of, would that be the right way to it's say that? G- well, so the, the bulk of the hurricane, like everything outside of the, um, the eye is actually where the hot air is rising. And then you get cold air that's actually going down the eye from top to bottom. Cool. Okay. Flowing down. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um, because inside of this eye, you now have a super low pressure zone, like really low pressure. Um, part of why the eye is so eerie when it passes over you, if it does. Um, and also due to the low pressure zone and just the, the speed of the winds and everything, that's what creates the storm surge. So you literally have an increased amount of water that you think of a dome of water where the eye is moving. Um, and this is what causes what they call the storm surge. So when the storm makes landfall, it's going to push excess water, you know, up onto the shore or whatever. Um, yeah, so as far as where these things uh, are occurring, like I said already, the, the equator, um, but really the path they tend to take is, talking about hurricanes, it's going to be, Again, forming either in the eastern um, Pacific or in the Atlantic. And so, you know, they can kind of start from basically above South America, right? And and come slam into either parts of South America, the Caribbean, right. Florida. Right. They can move across the land or they can form out in the Pacific as well. Yeah, Hawaii had um, one not too long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't uh, – I think Hawaii is generally – or at least what I heard on the news, I suppose, is that it's generally out of the path of most things. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah. I noticed the direction of the one that hit uh, just recently, Michael, I believe, uh-huh. uh, which mm-hmm. did a ton of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, that one, as opposed to the most previous one, which I've already forgotten the name of, or the second most previous, recent one, came from like... Florence. Florence, thank you. Lawrence came in sort of and broadsided the United States, whereas mm-hmm. Michael sort of came up and into the actual Gulf and then turned yeah. right and went back out of yeah. the sea. 
pretty wild that they can yeah such... so that's yeah kind of somewhat typical where they like follow up the coast like that they'll come spiraling in you know from east to west and then they'll kind of curve up you know and follow the land and that's probably just due to the pressure differences right. of you know being over the land versus the water and it kind of follows the coast um to a degree slamming into it in various locations of course <laughs> um so you're also getting typhoons over near like um i guess it would be india and indonesia and stuff so south of japan i don't think japan at least according to the map i'm seeing um doesn't really get anything so south of that um the uh east coast of africa a little bit like near madagascar is kind of a zone and then the northern half of um Australia is also getting cyclones. Oh wow! Okay, as, as they call them, yeah. So, <laughs> at least according to my map that I have, which came from NASA, so I'm gonna trust it. Um. Okay, so that's kind of how they form and where they happen, as far as naming goes. So this is pretty interesting, and um. Well, I guess we'll talk about how they're classified first. So. Like I mentioned before, tropical. We'll start at tropical depression. Um, so how this is classified is an organized system of clouds and thunderstorms with a defined surface circulation, and maximum sustained winds of thirty-eight miles an hour or less. Uh, and the way um, the sustained wind figure is measured, I guess, is like a one-minute average at about thirty feet or ten meters above the surface of the water. So they'll take a measurement one way or the other um and it has to sustain that for a minute to get that rating um i wonder if it ha does ha do they have buoys out there or are they flying no they're not flying well i can actually get to that okay. in a minute right. of right. how they do that um because it's fascinating i have a whole section here on how you track hurricanes <laughs> so <laughs> um Okay, so next would be the tropical storm, right? So same thing, um, organized system, and it's interesting that they use organized. Uh, stronger thunderstorms, whatever, the whole thing. Um, and the winds are going to be sustained from 39 to 73 miles per hour. And then to be classified as a hurricane, and I believe this figure applies to whether it's a hurricane or cyclone we're talking about, whatever. Um, it has to be sustained winds of 34 miles per hour or higher. Which, um, which and doesn't also, seem too bad, ultimately, 34. Not compared to what they can be. Right. Um, yeah, and I think... So it's saying that it has to have a well-defined surface circulation. So if it's just like they measure some sustained winds, but it's not... Going in a direction... Really? Yeah, it's not this, like, you know, swirling system. It's just kind of more isolated. Like, that's not going to be called a hurricane, right? Right. It's got to it's gotta sustain the wind, but it's also kind of have to have a shape purpose. and everything going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's got to be angry. Right. Um, okay, so once this tropical storm, depression, whatever, becomes a hurricane, um, they start using the... Saffir Simpson hurricane scale. So I guess that's just um who came up with two it. Two people, hope. two people that came up with it. Yeah. Um 
So the scale goes from 1 to 5, 1 being the weakest and 5 being the strongest. Um, so, you know, 1 is the sustained speeds are 74 to 95, 2 is 96 to 110, 3, 111 to 129, 4, 130 to 156, and 5, 157 or higher. Um, so what's what's interesting here is, while I would agree that it's important to have a way to classify these things, just, you can't always expect or, you know, predict that the Category 5 is going to be more damaging than, you know, any of the others, 1, 2, 3, or 4. Um, the size of the storm isn't considered when you're giving it a category rating. Right. Um, the size of the storm surge, the amount of rain... Um, and it's that was one of the, the big deals with Florence, right? It, it it hit at like a two or a three, I think, maybe even. I think it was a two. Was it a two? Not definitely. But that it wasn't definitely the pro- wasn't a three. Yeah. So the but wind wasn't was. what the problem was. Right. It was the fact that it, you know, the speed of the storm system was so slow and it had so much rain that that's what caused all the damage. So. Yeah, I think the you, the scale just has shortcomings in that regard. Definitely, that one does. Do you think why such arbitrary uh, mile per hour points? Is that based on um, did you know? Did they research a couple first and come up with a a rating based on what they were seeing, or because why wouldn't you just do like thirty mile an hour increments? Yeah, I'm not too sure. I did start to research the actual scale. Um, I decided to omit it from my yeah my topic, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, maybe it translates back to that was the other thing knots I was or something. Right. It or... wasn't originally done in mile per hour. That would be yeah, sense. yeah. That would be my guess, but I'm not sure. Um, okay, so how they're named. You know, all you know, we've already been saying it, like Florence and Michael, they have human names, right? You don't just call it Hurricane One, Hurricane Two, whatever. Hurricane so Andrew this, was another big yeah. one, right? So this is what got me actually interested in the topic because we started talking about this at work and I wanted to know, you know, is everybody following this type of convention or is it just a US thing or, you know, what's going on there? <laughs> um Yeah, so um, let's see. Da-da. Yeah, so I guess the the whole naming thing, as far as maybe not giving it names like Michael and Brian, that type of thing. Um, but people in the Caribbean have been naming these storms for like hundreds of years. So if you want to go way back, there's that. Um, but the more recent history, at least in the U.S., is in the 50s, we realized that basically it's just easier to name them because when you're referring to them, uh, it just uh, helps to avoid confusion and streamline communication. So when you have to communicate information about one of these storms to weather stations and coastal bases and ships out at sea, Hmm. rather than saying, you know, Hurricane blah, 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 it's just Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Florence. Like, it's just... It's a lot easier. Everybody and knows you only got to remember them for you know. Nobody needs to remember a hurricane. Well, I shouldn't say needs to. There are plenty of reasons, but like X twenty six versus X twenty seven, I could totally see how 
you could get those uh, confused in re- even recent memory. Right. Um, Especially because it there's no, you know, hurricanes don't care what you think. There's there's multiple going on at a time, <laughs> potentially, right? So yeah. if you've got one out in the Pacific and one out in the Atlantic, and you got to talk about these things, it's way easier to just have separate names. Um, so that kind of just all happened through experience, I guess. Couldn't we have, like, my immature side wants it to be, we can still use, like, something unique and realistic, or not realistic, but, like, a phrase, just like, Hurricane Oh Shit. <laughs> and, uh, well, maybe eventually. Um, yeah. <laughs> they start running out of names. Um, yeah, so I think they started doing that in the 50s. Um, and then they started out just using, um, female names. And then I think it was somewhere around the seventies. They also brought in male names. Um, so this list, there's actually a list of names for these Atlantic storms. So we'll, we'll talk hurricanes specifically. Um, and it's maintained by the, um, the World Meteorological Organization. So there's actually a world organization that maintains, among other things for sure, but they, you know, handle the naming of, of these storms. And they also have lists for of other names for storms that happen elsewhere. So there's a hurricane-specific list, which consists of, it's basically like a six-year rotating list of names. Um, so the names list out from A through W, there's 21 names per list, and six of those, and they alternate between male and female names is how they have it set up. Um, and so what that means basically is that right now we have all the storms through 2023 named. We don't know what those storms are, but you know we have the names. Lined grab up. one from the list. <laughs> well, it's going to be consecutive, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so just yeah. whatever the Good next point. one is. So what's really interesting, this I didn't know. So they only have 21 names on the list. So if there happens to be 21 or 22 or more storms in a year or a season, um, they start resorting to just the Greek calendar, I guess. I'm not sure if this has ever happened, though. That will be the day that that does happen. It'll be a big news thing. <laughs> People freak the fuck out, which for good reason. But Probably, yeah. The gr- so this is also interesting about the names. like... Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so they have this the six lists, right, that are rotating. Um, names are reused unless a storm is like significant enough or deadly enough, whereas they deem it inappropriate to reuse the name. Okay. So, like Hurricane Harvey that hit Texas, yeah. that name will that name has been retired yeah. and removed from the list, and it gets replaced with another H name. So that one won't be used ever again. Um, just kind of, you know, out of respect for, for sure. what happened. Do they, what's the, is it just like damage dollars or something that, uh, or is it sort of just um, discretion? It's this organization, yeah. the WMO, uh, they're going to, among other things, like I said, but they're going to decide whether just based on cost or um you know, loss of life, that whole thing. So it depends. It's up to them. But 
So I thought it'd be interesting to see which storms were, or storm names were retired in our um, birth years. So I was kind of expecting there to be more, but there was only one per year. So in 91, Hurricane Bob. So Bob will never be used again. Um, and this this is interesting, actually. It's kind of ironic. One of the costliest storms in New England's history. So this storm hit, land, it made landfall twice in Rhode oh, Island. Damn. So it hit Rhode Island, and, and Rhode Island's yep. tiny. Hit it, went back out, gained some more power, <laughs> came back in. Um, and it was the only storm to make landfall that year. So, I mean, it was, it was an interesting year as far as hurricanes go. And so that landed at a category three. Um, and actually, I guess that was the last one to hit new England directly, you know, as a classified as a hurricane. So they get, um, the remnants of hurricanes all the time, usually rain and wind and stuff, but it's never a hurricane by the time it makes it up there, but this one was. So that's the last time that happened. Um, and then for me in 92, uh, hurricane Andrew, which I think, didn't you say that before? Yeah. I just, when we started the name conversation, I just, hurricane Andrew stuck in my mind. Although I was not old enough to remember anything at that point. What do you know about it? Just that it was a big one. Really? I I don't know why that was was a monster Florida, right? Uh, yep. Landed out of category five, dude. Sustained winds of up to 175 oh, miles shit. an hour. 175 miles an hour. Um, it was the largest storm to hit Florida uh, until Irma hit last year in 2017. Wow. So it was it was holding that record for <laughs> quite a while. Um, um, and it was also the, the the costliest until Katrina in 25. The 25. So it was. Yeah, it was big. It was big. Yeah, it was a monster. 65 people died and $27.3 billion in damage, and that's 1992 money. So, pretty serious. Um, Okay, so this was fun to look up, uh, how we track hurricanes. So, how do we do that? Um... So there's kind of three three main things, I guess, that we use at this point. So satellites are the first. So the newest generation of these satellites, um, and there's actually two that I, excuse me, were mentioned specifically. They're, uh, what do they call them? GOES. Let me see if I can do this. Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellites. So they've got two of these up there. Um goes east and goes west and basically they operate in tandem and they send overlapping images of the storms in the western hemisphere so this is kind of how you get a lot of those images that you'll see as we're tracking the storms um next radar so this is uh one way they use or what they use to investigate like rainfall um, how much rain there is, and they can also, I guess, use radar to determine wind speeds. Nice. Um, I don't know how accurate because the next thing is the reconnaissance aircraft, which is just that's a ridiculous badass. to me. That's a badass dude it's who's gonna fly into a fucking hurricane. It's a badass dude or team, and it's a badass plane, yeah. probably too. Yeah, yeah. 
I'd want my plane so in these guys, top shape for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> for these doing that kind of thing. guys and gals are flying straight into the eye of the storm to just look at it. <laughs> right? So they're going to observe and collect data and just kind of get a feel for things. Um, um, real quick, going okay. back to the satellites real fast. Um, oh, yeah. Geostationary orbit means that um, the satellite is in a particular position, uh, height and speed away, you know, from the surface of the earth that it basically mm -hmm. sits right over that spot. It doesn't. Right. It's, it's floating. There. Right. Okay. That. It, yeah. That makes sense. That is the orbit that last week I was talking about that asteroid. If it were mm -hmm. to come through in the right way, those satellites would get a picture of that asteroid that I was talking about. Holy shit. That's, that's yeah. I don't know if they'll be in the right place. I, I, I definitely don't know that. Yeah. But, uh, if it were the case, yeah, I'm not sure how far up those I are. Think, I, I want to say it's like a million miles. I can find that real. Um, it feels far, but not for an asteroid. Oh, wow. I was way wrong. I don't know where the hell I was. No way. It's a million miles. Yeah. <laughs> That's like moon distance, isn't it? Yeah, wow. Yeah, uh, the moon's 300,000. So I don't know what the hell I was on about. <laughs> I just made shit up. That's all. Uh, Twenty. I was with you for a minute there. <laughs> 22,236 miles hmm. or 35,786 really? kilometers. So wow. okay. not far. If we consider that the moon is actually, I think it's two, I forgot from last week. It's like two something. Mm. So anyway. if you had to guess, if you were going to fly an aircraft into a hurricane, would you go low or would you go high <laughs> um you know that briefly crossed my mind earlier i guess i thought about flying over it and gliding down into it such that i'm sort of going with everything rather than fight against mm -hmm. it and so mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to bank you know if it's if it's going clockwise i'm gonna i'm gonna come down on top of it and bank right and kind of hmm. gradually fall that into sense. it that's my kind of like following the dream yeah, really yeah yeah, I didn't think about the direction too much, but um, that makes sense. But yeah, comfort. Apparently, so I guess not. Oh, man. They fly in low, anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand feet, which when we're talking about one of these things is quite low. Um, and I don't know if that's because the wind speeds are going to be lower, uh, or what. But they probably do go with the yeah, direction. Yeah, I have to imagine they're, to they're imagine, right? following whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is the coolest thing. So to to collect data, they use this um, expendable weather reconnaissance device, basically called a uh, a drop sond. Drop sonde? <laughs> no, definitely drop sond. D R O P S O N D E. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So. These look like, I don't know how big they are really, but the image of them, it just looks like this little stick, like a glow stick with a parachute on it, basically. <laughs> um, and they drop these things out of the aircraft into the storm. And like I said, they're expendable, so they're not trying to get these back. But basically, as this thing is following or falling through the storm, uh, it sends data back to the plane. So it's got a GPS receiver on it you know, some pressure sensors, temperature, humidity, all these things. Um, 
and in the and basically it's transit from plane to ocean it sends data back to the plane and i don't know how many of these get dropped into a storm but i just thought that was so cool you just chuck them out the window and report back tell me what pretty happens. much it's like bombing the yeah, yeah. yeah. good luck buddy <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, yeah it's kind of messed up especially if they're not uh if we never plan to retrieve them we're just like yeah see you yeah hopefully they're biodegradable probably not probably not <laughs> uh, we could go get them i'm sure especially they're probably expensive design them to float design them to float and report back their gps position go grab right them. or at least they'll wash up eventually um yeah so kind of i guess as far as uh classifying and, and how we deal with them and everything um but then where i kind of started to go was interested to know just some trends i guess like how specifically how global warming is sure affecting or not affecting um climate change you know. alex climate change shit you're right that was a newbie mistake right there is that al Gore so, mistake? <laughs> i have an agenda <laughs> um so in your in your opinion or just your perception of things would you feel that they're getting more frequent and stronger is that your feeling towards it i've thought about this a lot and i can't tell if it's mm -hmm. so the answer is yes it does seem that mm -hmm. way to me but i'm mm -hmm. trying to be cognizant of two things the increased access to information in this day that and age my thought. Mm -hmm. and then also just growing up and paying attention right yeah i had the exact same thoughts yeah um but so yeah, i looked into it, it a little does. bit yeah and and intuition before even looking up or or talking about it uh with facts um if just knowing that climate change is a thing you would think that it's going to affect one of the most extreme phenomenon that happens i mean climate related we right started out how can learning, it not affect it yeah we started out learning that the surface water needs to be 80 degrees that would have happened or higher that would have happened a certain number of times mm -hmm. i would venture to guess that uh, that number of times is probably on the rise so yeah just from that yeah. fact alone yeah i agree um so what i found uh was this is from the source is the global fluid dynamics laboratory that's a badass and name. it is a badass name and a badass job and basically what they do i don't know if they're contracted via noaa or or what but they work in tandem with them they're basically in charge of developing the most state-of-the-art and advanced climate models computer models for examining particularly weather and climate related things right um yeah, so so they work together. They probably um, so hate the providing them. people because that's not natural the, and you can't predict it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're probably not down with that if I had to guess. Yeah. It's a nerdy-ass joke. <laughs> well, it's just relevant to what we've done before. <laughs> um, so they did a full-on report, um, and I believe it's it came out in 2015 but it looks like based on reading through it that they they've been updating and everything um but 
they basically came up with, I'm going to do my best here to, to summarize this, but there's five main conclusions that they came up with in terms of how um, climate change is affecting or will um, affect uh, hurricanes. So, and this is based on, they, they had to use some research, uh, something called IPCC AR5, which is basically um, our latest prediction of climate change. So they're using the data from that study to then make their right. own predictions right. and studies. Um, okay, so the first one, actually, before I say any of these five conclusions, they have a, a little legend. So when they say very likely, that means greater than 90%. Likely is greater than 66%. And then more likely than not is greater than 50%. Okay. So those are the terms that they're going to use. So sea level rise, which is very likely, has... A, I'm just going to read these word for word. Um, has a substantial human contribution to the global mean observed rise, according to that study I mentioned. Um, and it will be... Or it should be causing higher storm surge levels for tropical cyclones that do not... Or that do occur, all else assumed equal. So... Even if nothing else changes, just the fact that the sea is rising, an equivalent hurricane is going to have a stronger storm surge due to that fact. And the storm surge is definitely... So that's that's 90% okay. yeah. or greater. The storm surge is one of the more damaging parts of things. Well, I guess it also... It, it would also... appear so, yeah. Yeah. It's certainly nothing to shrug off. <laughs> um. So tropical cyclone rainfall rates will likely increase, so greater than 66% in the future due to um, warming and uh, increase in atmospheric moisture content. Um, so they're predicting an increase on the order of 10 to 15% average, you know, rainfall. Um, so this is, they're using a 2 degree Celsius global warming scenario. So, you know, that's the... That's the number that's always yeah. thrown around, right? That we need to stay under. So, assuming we don't stay under that, they're predicting 10 to 15% increase in rain um, for these storms, on average. Uh, tropical cyclone intensities globally will likely increase anywhere from 1% to 10%. So, again, that's a 60 66% or greater. Chance of a 1% to 10% um, greater increase. Right, Exactly. <laughs> Um, let's see. So they're not necessarily talking about the size with that one. Um, I think they're talking about, um, I'm not sure how they classify intensities. That actually might have to do with the pressure, but I'm not sure. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, the global proportion of tropical cyclones that reach very intense that being category four or five levels will likely increase. We're still dealing with the sixty-six percent yeah, to the more than not, right? Um, yeah, so they're going to get more intense on average. Um, let's see. Yeah, the last one's a little more confusing. Um, 
we'll skip that one, but they're, they're talking about um, detecting storms and stuff. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll skip over that one. But there, <laughs> there are four main conclusions that we just went over, is that it's going to get more intense. Higher storm surges, more rain, um, larger storms, and uh, more Category 4s and 5s making landfall. So that's that's scary. Definitely. I mean, these storms are wiping out. Yeah, I feel like coastal cities. I feel like cities. it's been a pretty rough year. Mm-hmm. Well, so the next thing, and I don't know how long have we been going here. Uh, Forty-five. All right, we'll finish with this. Um, I just wanted, to, I kind of wanted to know. Uh, you know, when the most extreme storms have happened. Um, so I have three lists here that are ranked, you know, based on different okay, factors. Right, right. So um, so this is why I think intensity is based on pressure because there, this is the list of most intense landfall storms. Um, and this is based on um, the central pressure. So actually what that would mean is the lower the pressure in the eye, the more intense per se, the which storm I think is. you could describe as um, the, the most potential energy, the lowest pressure equals the most, but yeah, exactly. The highest differential from ambient right, pressure to right. the low pressure in the, in the eye. Yep, exactly. Um, so we won't, I don't have to read them all necessarily, but just some of the standouts here. Uh, so number one is, so I guess this is before the um, naming convention because it was in 1935 and it's just called Labor Day. Um, and the, the pressure was 892 millibar, which I guess is quite low. Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh... So what's quite interesting here is that Michael, the one that literally mm-hmm. is going on right now, essentially, is number three at 919. Uh, Katrina in 2005 and Maria last year in 2017 are at 920, so they're number four. Uh, and then Andrew, the one in 92 that we were talking about, was sixth on the list. At so 922. top six within, since 1992. Uh, well, except for the... No, number one right. was right, 1935. And number two, Camilla, is 1969. Um, but yeah, a lot of real strong ones there, three through six, and recent. Um, okay, so the costliest ones, and these are all hurricanes, so you know it doesn't necessarily mean that storms didn't happen elsewhere, right. but we're talking right. Atlantic hurricanes. Um, so this is going to be, you know, estimated property damage. Katrina and Harvey are tied for number one at $125 billion. And that's a pretty, you know, up-to-date number, 2005 and 2017. So um, I guess that would make Katrina technically cost more, right? Right, Since it's a little older. Uh, Maria and Sandy, 2017 and 2012, respectively. Those are at 90 billion and 65 billion. Um, So Florence is on here. uh, And it looks like maybe they don't have the estimate yet. Or the full number yet, but they're saying 
greater than or equal to 45 billion. Andrew makes the list again at number eight at 27 billion. Um, and then the last list I hear I have here is um, strongest, and this is the most. I won't say fun because that's not that's not cool, but most interesting one to look at is the wind speed. Um, so that 1935 storm, the Labor Day storm, that was also the lowest pressure, has the highest uh, speed of what 185 sustained. <laughs> so what what I want to know though. How accurate sure. is that measurement? Because sure. that was done in 1935. Um, you know, I've, I'd venture to guess probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what methods. If they were using the same methods, then... But I don't know. I don't think they People could be. People are pretty smart in 1935. Yeah, but they no, weren't they, dropping GPS-equipped uh, sensors into that's the eye of the storm. How would they have gotten out there without killing I'm themselves? I'm not sure how they do that. <laughs> um, let's see some other interesting ones. The tied for two, second place at 175 are two storms, 1962-69. Uh, Andrew, they have it listed here at 165. Uh, my previous source said 175, but still. Um, so Michael... Maria and Guam. Guam is pre-naming scheme. So Maria 2017, Michael uh, yesterday. 155. So they're tied for sixth. And then there's some others on there at 150. But can you imagine 185 mile an hour no, winds? I, I have no idea was, what any I, of this is like. I don't know. I saw some video footage like. from the typhoons <laughs> that went through Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what the wind speeds were, but... It, I, I'm mm -hmm. willing to guess similar because their word for this is going to be typhoon or our word for that location, but still basically the same kind of storm. Uh, we just call it a typhoon over there, I suppose, or at least I'm, apply I'm applying newly learned mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, people were getting tossed around like it was paper. Yeah. So let's, let's be conservative and say that there was like 140. That 140 was enough to send people you know, not really able to stand, mm -hmm. and I th paper maybe is a tad exaggeration, but <laughs> so 185 must be insane. Yeah, I can see That's that. It's like two by fours going it's, through. Shit. I mean, cars going around. I mean, Michael. So at 155, this latest storm. I mean, houses just the only thing right. there is the foundation. So it's enough to completely rip a building off its foundation. So. At that point, the difference between 155 and 185, maybe it's indistinguishable because it's just it all sucks. so intense. Yeah, so that's hurricanes, and props to the people that are there that have, you know, yep. people that have to go through these things because I no, can't really. No, definitely not. So it that's is absolutely terrifying. terrifying. I saw a picture of a whole bunch of power trucks parked up, like, uh, somewhere you know, above the path of the storm and they were all staged and all the guys mm -hmm. were already basically camping out in their trucks at this location, waiting for the storm yeah. to pass so that they could roll in right away. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And I don't know with Michael so much, but with Florence, I mean, they had emergency responders from, you know, tens of other States 
coming in to help. So, whoops. All right. So, um, I don't think uh, ancient Egypt would be really on the list of places to get hit by one of these things. Just thinking about its location, <laughs> but. If there had been any, so. if there had been any ships that had gone through or taken literature, uh, gone through a, a a storm like this and written stuff down about it, or bringing books anywhere mm -hmm. from any place that somebody had written it down, if that ship had pulled into the port of Alexandria, the library of Alexandria would have sent people, the police, really, to the ship. They would have confiscated the. Uh, the books and the written documents and whatever it is, they would have taken it back to the library and they would have copied it. And then there's debate over whether they would have given back the original or given back the copy and kept the original. <laughs> I have to think it's the first one because if word got around that the city of Alexandria was just being a huge dick and taking everybody's books and giving back like parchment, uh, well, papyrus uh, copies, yeah, catch. Um, then mm -hmm. people probably would have stopped going there. <laughs> so I have to think it's the first one, but wow. maybe, That's who knows? A, uh... Maybe the, the it was a major port city, so maybe people were like, you know what, it's worth it. So That might be the most elaborate area <laughs> center yet. And then we would have lost all that knowledge because, <laughs> so we would have, there would have been a whole treasure trove of ancient hurricane, typhoon, cyclone knowledge and it would have it would have burned. Uh -huh. So yeah, my um, my topic will a little bit uh, of the stuff around the Library of Alexandria, which is like cool. a great the one of the reasons it's so such a powerful story, I suppose, is uh, that it was destroyed and potentially a number of times. And hmm. the I don't think I know a single okay, thing cool. about this. Um, I as anybody who's listened to every episode i love history so not entirely surprising i suppose um it's just fascinating to especially when you don't know about stuff which we know very little ultimately mm -hmm. about well we, we as, as in society, society i guess depending on your perspective mm -hmm. we either know a decent amount or not much at all about this library um but it's arguably at least in the known history you know there's this is not really the topic, but there's, um, oh, not, I shouldn't say evidence, but depending on who you listen to, there's a potentially an advanced human civilization way before, like 20,000 years ago type stuff. You know, the Sphinx is potentially that old, but anyway, um, in the sort of more recent history and the, the more documented history, the stuff that we can really point to, the, um, the mm -hmm. library is arguably the first real major center of human collective learning and re research institute mm. so um it's certainly at least in our known world uh the most the largest one it's probably hard to say it's the first okay that's that's definitely subjective but yeah and had it not been lost it's one again so one of the things is had it not been lost and had the information not been destroyed the amount that we might understand uh, about that time, it's just, we don't know how much is lost, really, mm. and that's what makes it so tantalizing, is 
Right. So that's why you're saying we, we either know a lot or a little. Well, we don't and, know and we how certainly much know very know. little, but I guess <laughs> the fact that I can prepare topics on it, or, you know, prepare a topic on it, I, in some ways we, we know some things about it. But all we know about it really is through references from other material. The library itself, totally, total, okay. total loss. So first... Mm-hmm. So there's nothing, nothing left for you to go. Other than I'll get, I'll get to it. Other than potentially the this just one like little sub basement thing. No, no, it's all gone as far <laughs> as we know. So okay. quickly, uh, the city of Alexandria is uh, the second largest, or at least was the second largest city in um, ancient Egypt, and it was started by or it was uh, founded by Alexander the Great in about uh, what was that? 332 BC. Um, hmm. He Why was, was he founding Egypt. that there. So Alexander the Great quickly was a Macedonian king, uh, essentially a Greek king, mm-hmm. um, that inherited uh, his kingship, I suppose, from his father, Philip, I think. Um, he was taught by Aristotle up until he was 16. So he. he definitely was a privileged young man and then from about age 20 to age 30 set about creating certainly a, at that time the largest uh empire ever assembled it stretched from wow. greece to northwest india the next greatest Damn. or the next one to beat that uh, probably the mongols i think i think that would be right which would have been 600 years or i'm sorry uh, not yeah, 600 years, makes sense. like 1500 years later. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, he, yeah, he, wow. 10 years to do that too, that's by old, the way. It's a long time ago. 10 years to go. 10 years? Uh, I mean, ultim- maybe not just 10 years to do everything, but the bulk of it was done from when, when he was maybe 20, 21 to when he was about 30, 31. What are the grounds for you know conquering and actually being contained he, within his um you know back then what does it take to be considered that's part a great of his, question uh, um, i didn't prepare anything on that but just from my sort of memory it can be a, probably a mix of things like mm-hmm. definitely i think the, the most e- the easiest way to say it would be if a capital city were captured all the lands that that kingdom was said mm-hmm. to have owned fall under now whoever's taken the capital, basically. Maybe individuals. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I just imagine, like, I was just to say back then, like, it's sure. got to be so hard I, I think to keep about that tabs on everything when it spreads yeah. so far. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? Just because you did, you conquered something, but then you left. Like, well, you don't... they. Um... You gotta have like some crazy yeah. network of communication to to know that that establishment has right. rebelled against you or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's a, I mean that's a real thing. I, I think rebellions sometimes were able to happen because they were able to keep things hidden much easier for a couple months, get people together for sure. Mm-hmm. But also, he mm-hmm. he he physically did get as far as, if I remember correctly, he did get you know very far. So he his army also physically is capturing city. Yeah after city sure and those people are are loyal to him so as long as that loyalty (laughs) true the ancient ancient conquest is a pretty uh, brutal subject it's uh 
they they were not nice. To, most people were <laughs> most conquering armies were not very nice. Yeah. Just look at Columbus. <laughs> I saw an article uh, within the last week uh, acknowledging and then attempting mm-hmm. to defend. So acknowledging the more recent information about Columbus, but then turned around and said, well, it wasn't really that bad. Okay. Yeah. He was just following the culture of the time, Is was their main argument. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you like did I say said, it, yeah. that was one of my thoughts, but then I read that thing and I was like, okay, maybe not. Granted, that's, you know, one perspective, but still. Uh, last thing about uh, Alexander the Great, which is, again, what a name. Um, he's apparently undefeated in battle. That's uh, that's what they say. However, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if there was a battle or two, a skirmish or two that you know they just gloss over that in the history books. That's exactly just he was the conqueror. He ultimately was the victor. So even if a momentary <laughs> loss occurred, you know, didn't live to tell about it. Right. Um, so yeah, founded <laughs> Alexandria in 332 BC. Um, and that was the capital of mm-hmm. Egypt uh, for about a thousand years. So, and sort of across Damn. two major uh, empires, I suppose. The uh, the Roman Byzantine capital. Mm-hmm. So from the founding up into the creation of the Roman Empire, which was about three hundred years later ish, and then from there forward until uh, for another. 800 years or so, whatever I said, uh, to uh, during the Roman Empire. <laughs> um, and then the uh. Muslim conquests of 641 AD ultimately was its unseating of power. And it contained a okay. few what you might consider world wonders. It had the Lighthouse of Alexandria, uh, the library itself, and something called the Necropolis. So quite the place. Mm. Okay, moving on to the library itself. Sounds uh, fancy. Quick disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Mo, you know, talking about this stuff. Yeah, this is all, this is all made up. <laughs> the points don't matter. <laughs> well, it's kind of like it's hard to say that the library was the first center of like research. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the people that I'm going to talk about, um, it's hard to say that they were the first to do certain things. Certainly, some things it's it's easy to say. And then other, th- other things that we don't know if maybe the works that we know about were produced by a team and ultimately credited to one guy just because that's how things worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also other people, yeah. certainly there are um, people that are furthering along already established things. So taking what came before and improving upon it. So, um, yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So it's our best guess, but um, so we actually don't know much about the physical library itself. Uh, it apparently had a zoo. Uh, it was a, uh, it was had dissecting rooms. It had an observatory. It had the the actual storage space for the library uh, for the books. Um, and so, yeah, it was a research institute. It probably had some sleeping quarters and eating quarters and all that sort of thing. It was a quite the place. But um, hmm. physically, all we all we think we have left is this uh, basically this little basement area where scrolls were probably just stored. Um, it didn't serve any 
more notable purpose than that. Um, and even that's somewhat up for debate. Mm -hmm. So what, what was the first thing that made us say, okay, this exists? The library? I mean, how do, yeah, like oh, how did we even sure. um, know about it at all? Uh, what was that guy's name? Shoot. Uh, the the very first guy to rule the city after Alexander died uh, had it built and mm -hmm. declared. Yeah, so oh, okay. uh, Ptolemy, I think is how you say it, um, which is sort of the description of the uh -huh. the rulers. So Alexander the Great. No, did he not founded the city. This. Right, and then he died. The city he died fairly okay, young, got it. Uh, like thirty. I think he was only like 35 350 he lived from 356 to mm. 332 we think mm. i'm sorry i'm sorry uh 323 so 356 to 323 so that's 33 years um and he founded it in 332 so he would have been i think what is that like 20 i'm gonna embarrass myself here i think that's 21 bc going in the wrong direction there yeah so yeah he died so the okay. city was maybe let's say 10 years old he died and i definitely wrote down where the hell did i put that guy's name i definitely wrote down the general's name for the record i did not found a city <laughs> when i was oh no age. or any age no hmm. nope not me found it um so yeah ptolemy ptolemy P-T-O-L-E-M-Y is the term a Ptolemy ruler would have, you're, you're describing a ruler of Alexandria post-Alexander's um, post death. So, mm -hmm. and I think the first guy was actually named as such. It was a little confusing to me. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. he was also a Macedonian general, so of the same uh, type as Alexander. Yeah, and he had it... Uh, Mm -hmm. he had it built okay got it so there's just we have documentation yeah. in terms of okay and nobody drew like Not, a sketch or anything well i think damn, i think on. that's where things like um so again all this most well all of this information that we have about it including stuff that is potentially in there we only know about it if someone referred to it in some other piece of literature and then we found that yeah so okay. there may have been a sketch at one point but it was probably in the library itself true so that's true. how we know things like a zoo and dissecting rooms and the fact that there's a they should have backed <laughs> up their files funny uh good good thought we'll get to that okay <laughs> uh let's see so, I mean, when I think about this place, I mean, this is just like, almost feels like some sort of oasis place. Yeah, definitely. Where it's just... And uh, Alexandria yeah, is still a city. A very, a very grand image in my head. Uh, today. You can, you can okay. look it up. It's in, it's in Egypt. Cairo is now the uh, capital of Egypt. But it's at the... Alexandria is at the... Um, oh, and I'm embarrassing myself again. It's in the northeast corner of egypt is it i should know what delta that is i'm totally blanking on it oh i'm not sure so you're good 
just uh, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean. Um, so as I, I described at the Barry Center, I thought that was the funniest thing um, that the ships, anybody that came in, you were searched. Uh, and if you had material that they didn't already have, they made a copy of it. I just thought that that was really funny. Hmm. They also sent people like the city and the director of the libraries, you know, the directors of the library over time. They sent people to purchase books and they, the, the place was actively scooping up as much knowledge as it could. That's another reason it was so. Yeah. So they were, they were just trying yeah. to collect whether they formulated exactly. it themselves or not. So that's another yeah. reason. But you're saying that they, they were also trying to do their own yep. research and, you know, Okay, got it. Um, so yeah, some of the, uh, and all the scrolls were, uh, so I'll say books, uh, but ultimately they were papyrus paper scrolls. And papyrus is a, a plant that's really uh, abundant in that area. And it's, <clears throat> it's funny, there's a theory that the reason parchment paper was created was not because it was better than papyrus, but because the Library of Alexandria was consuming all the papyrus for paper reasons that somebody was <laughs> like, shit, we need to come up with something else. <laughs> we need something else. Who, that that seems a little fantastic, but yeah. I would like to get a hold of a authentic papyrus cool, right? scroll. Not necessarily, you know, 2,000 years old, but um, that would be cool to just like, what's the, there's got to be a verb for opening Un a scroll scrolling no unfurling <laughs> Un <-scroll> de scrolling <laughs> i hope it's a good yeah yeah um yeah. anyway sorry <laughs> digress it's all good uh so yeah what um so let's talk about some people that were probably in there doing stuff <laughs> okay and remember most of this oh, all of this as far as a primary copy primary document whatever um is, is all gone so again we only know about this stuff just because mm -hmm. except for one one thing in a little bit but anyway um so um, so these are ancient names i'm going to butcher most of them i think <laughs> dionysius of thrace or thrace uh was credited as the as a guy i didn't actually get his dates i got dates for everybody else but um He's credited with the first to really put down in writing and define uh, aspects of speech. So nouns, verbs, adjectives, a few types of sentence structure. People had language, of mm. course, before. People were speaking before, but he was basically right. one of the first people to try to start standardizing things. So he just kind of took it upon right. himself to start that process. Interesting. Uh, an astronomer, astronomer Hipparchus in 120 he was active at least uh around 121 bc he uh is got a few pretty cool things um he created uh we have access to a couple models that he made for the travel of the paths of the sun and the moon they turned out to be accurate oh, wow. so oh, that's uh what is that 2000 2002 in terms of what like he a had the globe no, and then, uh, positions then... relative or... i would imagine at least it's uh relative to his location 
he was able to, to accurately predict where the sun would be um, over time, you know, past time that he had known. Got it. Yeah. Um, mm. And the same for the moon. So he was able to say in a month, the moon is going to be right in this spot in the sky. Got it. Um, he now a lot of that math though, this is what I was talking about. Maybe at the start, um, he definitely didn't do that entirely on his own. Those models, he had a lot of math, uh, done by the Athenians and the Babylonians before to go off of, but he certainly contributed. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. I suppose it's possible. He was the only, the first one to write it down. Maybe he was just like in the bar and like heard somebody talking and he's like, Oh shit, I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> wrote it down on a napkin. Um, and uh, let's see, he was, he seems to be the first guy that could, in addition to the sun and the moon stuff, makes sense that he might also be able to say uh, he could accurately predict solar eclipses. Oh, and wow. then he's credited with really? the first comprehensive star catalog. So the first book of this point in the sky is this star. Hmm. Do we use any of his names still? Uh, no. Uh, he, you know, I actually, <laughs> I would imagine he's got a constellation or something. He's got to have a reference somewhere. Yeah, but something. I don't know. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, there's a guy, Euclid. It's a pretty cool name. E-U-C-L-I-D, Euclid. Mm. Uh, 300 BC Euclid. is the time he was active. Known as the father of geometry. But again, Ooh. that seems, mm, you know, people before him were like, that's a triangle. Well, yeah, I mean, since he stated the fact that they're taking all this knowledge from elsewhere, or at least bringing it in, Some collecting it, it. Or a lot of it, I would imagine, but again, definitely also a place of furthering things along. Right, true. This guy does have a, um, at least it's credited to the author Euclid, but it's entirely possible that a group of people worked on it. But his mathematics book called Elements served as basically the main math textbook for two, you could say 2,000 years. Yeah. Whoa. So it had all kinds of... How long was this uh, library in existence? It's... Uh, the the, well, it was probably a complete shell of its former self by this point, but in 641, I believe that's the... 640, 641, whatever it was... Um, when the Muslim armies took over, uh, the guy, uh, Omar was his name, uh, ordered that mm -hmm. um, anything that doesn't agree with the Quran be destroyed, which was not specific to the library. It was just his policy. Yeah. So anyway. Right. But you're talking something that's close to a thousand years old already yes. at that point. So. <laughs> but as I'll, I'll describe in a bit, uh, potentially he potentially the library was much it was destroyed a number of times or, or damaged a number of times and it's probably by 641 not much was going on got it okay um let's see so yeah euclid um also connected uh so the main thing about the ele the book elements as uh, just to say uh quickly it um 
what really made it nice was he took a lot of work that was, in addition to contributing some of his own, he took a lot of work that was already out there, collected it in one place, and then also provided sort of mathematical connections between certain things. So he, uh, well, I, I, didn't, I shouldn't say I went into that level of detail, but um, he attempted he attempted to connect certain theories and then also provide new ones. So he came up with number theory um, and sort of define that, which includes prime numbers and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, Hippocrates. I don't know why I put up speak on that, but yeah, Hippocrates, <laughs> <laughs> I guess because I was, I'm sure I'm unsure of his name, but I, that's actually probably one of the easier ones. Hippocrates 370 ish BC father of medicine, mm -hmm. lots of fathers. Uh, so he's part of the start of modern medicine and was the first one to, or is credited with, with uh, being the first one to state that the brain was the seat of intelligence, uh, not the heart. And it was oh, wow. funny because some people before him, some famous people before him, thought that the brain was actually the radiator of the body. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Well, I mean, you lose a lot of heat sure. to your head. I mean, in some ways... It is. It, it, it is, right? In some ways, actually, that's not horribly wrong because it's using the most energy, as right. we learned, right? While, a while back, so it's going to expel the most but, heat. But um, that's not the only thing that the brain does. <laughs> no, of course not. But um, I, could just, I could just see where they might get that idea. Definitely. And, and ultimately... Pretty good observation, really. Plus, they were probably, yeah, they were probably just cutting people's heads open, and they were looking at that the thing. What does and this like, thing do? What is that? What is that? Why is it all lumpy and and big and unlike and looking? Yeah, <laughs> and big. Um. So let's see, Archimedes, definitely one that probably rings a bell. Um. Oh yeah. He. I don't know why, but it does. Probably Mythbusters, actually. Um, <laughs> he. Uh, what did he do? I think these are. This must be. These are his um, birth and death dates. So 287 to 212 BC. So he made it quite a ways. Um, and he's Archimedes of Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Now this one I couldn't quite tell. I, I didn't have too much or as much time to dig into each person totally. Um, they could probably be episodes in in of themselves, but uh, he seemed to spend a lot of time in his home city of Syracuse. So I'm, I was wondering how much time he actually mm -hmm. spent at the library itself, and I wonder if more just his works made it to the library. I was going to say right. maybe they, he just right. shipped his because that'd be pretty there. cool, right? If you're alive in that time and you're you're an intellectual, I would totally be sending my stuff over. Yeah, that that makes me wonder what was the perception of the library from Excellent other question. people? Were they happy to be getting their work, you know, included into this? Was, I was it gonna, a prestigious thing? Or were people like Damn um it. <laughs> Definitely a prestigious thing amongst people who cared. I'll describe towards the end. Yeah. Um well, it's sure. shocking how many people didn't give a shit at all. In fact, most people didn't give a shit. Hmm. Yeah. Really? Uh, which is really sad and ultimately probably has a lot to do with why it isn't around anymore. Also, you know, 3,000 yeah. years old. 
Wouldn't it be more like 2,500? Uh, well, well, not yeah. quite. 23. Getting there. Closer to 25 than 2,000, I suppose. So Archimedes, um, he... This guy definitely should get his own episode at some point, but um, he anticipated modern calculus by... This is... You'll have to maybe help me on this one, but applying concepts of intestinals and exhaustion it's basically you know how calculus uh as i know you know but uh calculus you can use it to sort of describe unknown spaces and approximate certain things mm-hmm. and so some of his writings mm-hmm. or at least what we we know about his writings he he kind of he kind of knew calculus was a thing he just didn't know how to describe or how to mathematically prove it he okay. approximated pi which is pretty cool this well, one, sources say he was one of the first or the first to apply math to physics, the physical world, really, not physics, um, founding uh, hydrostatic and static mathematical concepts as it relates to the real world. So like flows and yeah. Yep. Really? Back then? Um, and then definitely was sort of accredited uh, with all kinds of machines, uh, the compound pulley and the screw pump are directly attributed mm. to him specifically. Like he's the guy. Yep. And really? then all kinds. Well, yeah. He's like the exactly. Da Vinci of his day. And then all kinds of war machines, which were the story is, is that um, his motivation was Syracuse was under a lot of siege a lot of the times. And he was a true Patriot in that sense. So he worked on war machines that would mm. help protect the city. Right. Hmm. Right. What a, what a noble man. Just knocked over the microphone. Nice. Uh, okay. Last one here. Um, just what I was trying to attempt to build here is just like, this is just barely, barely scratching the surface. It was said that there, the most fantastic estimate is there was a million scrolls at its peak. And the most conservative mm. is 40,000. But generally people land in the middle and they say about half a million half a million scrolls or half a million books, depending on what you want to classify it. Yeah. Yeah. How you want to label it. Yeah. But that doesn't really, I mean, that's a lot of, it's a lot of content, but how much of it was shipposting? <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Like you don't know. It's an impressive number, but that's kind of where that figure ends. Right. You don't know anything, the breadth of that or, or whatever, what it, but. I would assume it to be to be great. Yeah, and we don't, we don't know. really know anything about uh, what sort of quality control there was. So was anybody reviewing the stuff? You know, was there a guy or team of guys that read stuff? <laughs> These pre- <laughs> peer-reviewed papers? I like to think that there would be, but who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah. Hiron or hero, uh, the ancient word is Hiron, um, of Alexandria, 10 AD to 7 AD, 70 hmm. AD. Um, he was, he's credited with the first steam engine. Yeah. What? So uh, straight up 2000 years ago. Well, he would have been 18 maybe at that time, but, uh, I wonder what that there was like. actually a picture. Uh, I found a picture. Uh, there's an engine. I'm forgetting the name of it. That looks, it's a flat surface and the, the heat. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I know what you're talking. Yeah, I know. I can picture it in my it head. It looked I just a lot don't know like the that. Name of it. 
and had right a ball now. it had a ball above okay. it too that, that had uh catching material you know like uh steam turbine type mm-hmm. stuff yeah that's cool um he's credited with the first vending machine and that was defined as putting a coin into a slot and receiving something for that <laughs> <laughs> he's got a couple different pumps to his name here we have a tank and steam engine and <laughs> gumballs for everybody <laughs> uh yeah it's i thought that one was great um so pumps were a big deal apparently uh moving water was definitely a big deal so lots of definitely lots oh, of incentive yeah. to come up with new pumps so he did that uh he's also got syringes accredited okay. to him hmm. so those are um just some of the people that would have been working or or notable people that would have had their works in inside this place but again they were they were consuming as right. much knowledge as possible so it's incredible what would have been hmm. there was a book by an astronomer oh, actually i lied there's a, another one um art oh jeez aristarchus i think is how you say that and he argued he was okay. a, he's accredited with uh, arguing that the uh the first one to say that the earth orbits the sun and the stars are super far away yeah oh wow so before that just thought the stars were a lot closer and they potentially were yeah um eric yeah you know with a lot of these things it's like given how old it is and just the the lack of right paper trail it's either he was the first one to write it down or he just by way of you know the way everything fell into place it was just the one that we remember or have you know right knowledge on but it doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't have written it down somewhere else and, and it's it entirely possible tracked. that it was written down somewhere else and just then was moved to the library and that's how we know of it right exactly there's a three volume history of the world written by a babylonian guy barosis we don't really know um at least i don't think we know what volume two and three were about but we know that volume one covered the creation of the world to the great flood uh of you know christian tales or calf uh that time between the creation of the world and the flood he wrote down i don't know how exactly we know this but uh i found it a bunch of places four hundred thirty-two thousand years in between the creation of sort of the start of what that human consciousness at the time would have known to have been the beginning of the world and the, the flood mm-hmm. he said it was four hundred thirty-two thousand years which is about a hundred times longer than what the old testament says huh where how does that discrepancy come up that that would be a depending on your your point of view that's probably a loaded question (laughs) probably yeah um but does tie into i'm gonna as i described the destruction of the library uh that that the fact that that book existed in the library at least to me is probably ultimately not just that book but that type of information that con- is contrarian to mm-hmm. the bible uh that is yeah. what got the library 
destroyed. Yeah. Uh, the conservatives. Uh, you got like it. it. Um, last thing I grabbed <laughs> about uh, people in this place or just stuff in this place. Um, there was a guy that he got the size of the earth pretty much right. The diameter of the earth right. And he also just by the fact that the method that he used, actually it's a, it's a good story. Um, basically shadows with a stick in one spot and shadows on a stick in another spot. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that uh, before, he also said that the earth was round but his and but that makes sense because if he was making a position on the diameter of the earth his method requires that the earth be round yeah so yeah pretty wild place it, yeah it does sound i wish that's one of those types of places you wish you could be like a fly on carl the sagan said that um if he could travel back in time only once, he'd go to the library. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So that that made it pretty. I like Carl Sagan. Yeah, that gives it De some uh, some weight, doesn't it? Okay, so let's cover um, how it was potentially destroyed. Yeah. So. I'm yeah. To know. Um, pretty quickly, the first sort of noted. There's a couple different times it might have been destroyed, and it's also totally unclear <laughs> to what levels of destruction these events uh, caused. I will um, give my opinion, though. So 48 BC, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar, the Julius Caesars, uh, there's a civil war going on, um, which ultimately is sort of the, the schism that creates the Roman Empire, which was previously the Roman Republic. Okay. So they go from having like a Senate and everything to having an emperor. Um, Caesar's the catalyst for that. Um, he is besieged in Alexandria. So he's, he's being attacked and can't really get out. He orders his ships mm -hmm. to be burned, his own ships to be burned to, I think just to deny the enemy because oh, well. things aren't, I don't, I don't think things are going well. So he's just like, shit, let's not let him have the <laughs> ships at least. Story goes that uh, the ships sent some fire that landed on the mainland. You know, they would have been in the harbor. Uh, and one thing led to another, and the, the library itself eventually caught on fire. Mm. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah, especially, cause, especially <laughs> because unlike the next two incidents, uh, uh, mm -hmm. it was actually, no, the, the later two out of the four, um, you know, he didn't mean to do it. Right. In fact, he would have been pretty, probably pretty bummed. Hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily, cause there are different, we have some material that says that that really wasn't the case. And I, I tend to agree just based on complete gut, um, because yeah, I'll okay. and say one more spot or one, uh, one, uh, another instance of potential destruction, but then the one after that seems to be the real, the real death blow. So I, I tend to think that maybe part of it caught on fire, but I don't think it suffered. It probably didn't suffer real crazy damage. So, okay. because we're talking, we're still talking about this place. Uh, so that was 48 BC, 270 AD. Mm -hmm. So over 300 years later. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. 
still talking about it in the sense that we have documentation right. or and people are still like there and doing stuff and and whatnot so to me mm-hmm. I, I doubt mm-hmm. it burned down completely mm-hmm. that is right well but my only counter to that offhand is if it's as glorious and prestigious as you say even if it burned to a crisp people are, would be inclined to rebuild it in uh, and also, uh, didn't really. I'm not really going to cover this, but there's definitely. It, it's entirely possible that in moments like that, although the ship burning one, maybe. Uh, well, it it's hard to know how many scrolls would have been in there. It's hard to know how long it would have taken for mm-hmm. the fire to spread to this place. But certainly, people would have been. There right. would have been a group of people for sure motivated to pick up all the scrolls and move them. So that certainly could have happened totally. too. Yeah. And who knows, uh, in 48 BC, only two, uh, was that, you know, under 300, a little under 300 years after its inception, probably didn't have its peak number of scrolls. Maybe not. Yeah, that could be. I was going to say, it, it might take a while to move 40,000 scrolls, think it would. but you're right, it might have not been, yeah, depends on how they're inventoried. Right. And the place was pretty big, it's so like... it, it's I, it's also possible that parts of it burned maybe parts without mm-hmm. the scrolls maybe the zoo caught on fire which was uh, yeah that's uh, i don't know why i picked that one <laughs> sorry <laughs> maybe you know just all the animals died that was fine didn't lose that knowledge though uh so yeah ad 270 uh aurelian a uh, a roman emperor was suppressing mm-hmm. a result a revolt um so this one, again, it seems it was more a casualty of the fighting. He definitely didn't mean to do it. Um, and it's debatable how much actually um, was destroyed. Mm. Then AD 391, so 121 years later, again, still talking about this place, uh, the Roman emperor Theodosius, Theodosius um, mm. made paganism illegal. So initially in the Roman Republic, especially religion in general, uh, but Christianity included was not, uh, they actually didn't even in the early days, it was, it was seen as a threat. Um, and it was not, uh, adopted or, or rec- maybe recognized, but it wasn't really a thing, uh, mm-hmm. that the official government sort of took part in. 391 is like the moment and specifically this guy Theodosius this is when the Catholic Church took control of Rome in in a lot of ways and took control of the Roman Empire and so this guy being influenced by that made paganism illegal the church defined paganism and the basically everything in the library was considered to be pagan so there's this woman Hypatia and mm-hmm. she was like the director of the library at the time, which was very rare, uh, she being a woman. Um, Wait, real quick. Is this the one that you think is most yeah. plausible? Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, the, by this time, All right, they've, so she's, they've got yeah. a lot of uh, power. and uh, Yeah, we Great. seem to also have a lot of information about it. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and qu- uh, to go quickly through this... Um, possible 
depending on how deep you want to go and how not conspiratorial, but uh, how many connections you want to make, uh, you can mm-hmm. definitely say that parts of the Christian religion, or I shouldn't say you can definitely say, you could argue that parts of the Christian religion have roots in what they now would consider pagan, like a lot of the symbols and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and that the the form and the people in charge of the church at this time wanted to like kind of rebrand and sweep certain things about the past under the carpet. Those things uh, would have been in the library. And sure. so, yeah. Eliminate. Yeah. Get rid of it. Um, got it. Got it. And this, cause this would have been, this is the, 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 uh, the Vatican or what will become that entity sort of, this is them. This is the time. This Roman emperor, like this, is the the big explosion moment where they're consolidating their power. And so this would have been like the first time that they're in control. So if you're going to rebrand, that's the time to do it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> huh. Okay. Probably could piss Yikes. a couple people off with what I'm saying right now, but. Um. So. It's just yeah. Thing, well. Yeah, and I'm not gonna. I, I don't know really about the whole roots of the religion and that sort of thing. But it is seems pretty well documented or as much as it can be um, that the library became a target. And this woman, Hypatia, was the one in charge or at least one of the ones in charge at the time. Mm-hmm. And she continued to openly do what she was doing. And eventually um, she was attacked on her way one morning to the library and they uh, they flayed her. Yeah, and um, then spent apparently the next year just destroying everything. And uh, nobody else tried to stop them. Well, there it it wouldn't have. It was the Roman Empire at this point. Yeah, yeah, you can't really too powerful. Can't really stop that, unfortunately. Or that you know, people were not willing to kill themselves for it. Mm -hmm. So, and that that leads me into sort of my last point, and so. That one to me seems like the most plausible or the most destructive one, let's say. Yeah. You know, my thinking is it's not, you know, like one of those fires couldn't have happened or something similar to that. Like you described, it's certainly plausible, but we have more information regarding situation three that you just laid out. Not necessarily that event specifically, but. The whole just, context of the consolidating of the church and all that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's just more of a defined... And they, we, we know for uh, sure that they were destroying other libraries and other documents, and so it, okay. it's pretty well yeah. known that the... the uh, Their motives right, are known. Exactly, good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, 642 is the Muslim one, so that's another 300 years later. It seems... Mm-hmm probable that by this time it was it was pretty uh maybe the building itself was still there um and certainly there were still some things going on but the roman empire would have still well that was the end of the rome or part of the end of the roman empire so for the 300 years after that and that third one you know something Mm -hmm. was still going on but definitely not at the level or probably not the detail that um it was previously Mm-hmm. there's also might have been an earthquake at one point that hurt the place um and there might be a couple other moments i mean when you're talking about a time span of a thousand yeah. years roughly yeah. certainly 
There's going to be some weather. There's going to be <laughs> maybe a little uh, E minor chord. That's exactly right. So the last thing I'll, I'll talk about, I suppose, is um, certainly the evidence and the context uh, that we know about the, the ancient world. It's likely that certainly in relation to people who cared to, to people who didn't really care, maybe call them common people, the ratio is huge. Most people didn't give a shit. And most people didn't like enjoy the benefits of the knowledge because one mm-hmm. of the things that seems to be going on was sure, all this knowledge was being accrued and yes, screw pumps were being installed and that sort of thing. But ultimately, mm-hmm. like slavery is one of the major catalysts for a ton of Rome's problems. And so you might make take a position to say that by gaining all this knowledge and doing all these things, hopefully people would progress to the point of saying that slavery was bad. And certainly people within, there's a couple, we, we think a couple people actively within the, uh, the library and people doing research there did feel this way, but mm-hmm. they were not able to sway the, the culture of the time at all, like even a little bit. And this is true for its entire existence? Yeah, yes. Hmm. Yeah, slavery, I mean, slavery did not stop being as... No, I'm, I mean, in the terms of the library's entire existence, nobody cared. Pretty uh, Certainly. Because it existed such a long time, potentially. I think certainly the people that went there, and, and you're, a couple people did, relatively speaking, but the other side of the relative, like, most people just did not have the time they were too busy surviving they were too busy surviving because you you basically had to be rich to be able to participate in Mm -hmm. knowledge gathering because otherwise you were farming or doing something else yeah i'm trying to think of like the equivalent um you know what the equivalent would be today but of something like that very prestigious and has a lot of potential but most people don't give a shit about Yeah. I'm not coming up with anything. Yeah. Obviously. So weapons of war were definitely like knowledge was applied to weapons of war, but it it just seems with hindsight and, and I mean, we're also I'm putting us on a pedestal right now, I suppose, our current civilization to a certain extent. But it just seemed like just the the feeling I got and I had read a couple of sources that openly described it. It just seemed like the knowledge within the walls of the library basically didn't really get outside the walls. And so people mm-hmm. didn't care because it ultimately really, they couldn't see the benefit. Yeah. It just didn't, it didn't make it to them or affect them really. Right. Hmm. Bad management. Apparently, yeah, definitely. No marketing team. So yeah, that's the library. That's crazy how we can suspect something so great but know so little about it yeah we're hoping that somebody stashed a whole cache cash cache jesus <laughs> a whole cache of scrolls somewhere in the egyptian desert and that will one day find them that seems what? unlikely to me but i mean sure yeah i hope so too but <laughs> what's the what's the evidence that that's true None at the moment. None. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's that's crazy. Well, I enjoyed that. Cool. Well, uh, check out um, check out our Instagram, Twitter, Amazon T-shirts. Um, yep. Heck yeah. WanderingBerryCenter at gmail dot com is where you can reach us, or mm-hmm. or through one of the other means for sure. Check out the website as well. Yep. We're actually working on getting the art to people, so you can check out Alex's wonderful <laughs> and time-consuming art projects. <laughs> hey i gotta say having that creative outlet it's nice i mean the podcast itself but then being able to do that it's pretty nice yeah all right cool thanks everyone cool anything else you want to say about the no no oops no all good yeah i think uh i probably filled enough uh heads of crazy names and dates and facts and figures that's exactly right that's what we do here All right, y'all. Take it easy.